It is now my delight and pleasure to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. David Naylor, the 15th president of the University of Toronto. Over the past few days, I've attempted to review the vast amount of information written about Dr. Naylor and his vision of the world today. Whether it be his role as president of the U of T with over 70,000 students, thousands of faculty and staff, and three campuses, or his commitment to ensuring that universities educate students to be what some call T-shaped individuals, or the call for the City of Toronto to upgrade transit to 21st century standards, encouraging synergy, sharing of innovation, and improving the quality of life in our modern world. The multitude of his accomplishments demonstrates the impact Dr. Naylor has made upon us in the last several years, including his desire to challenge our assumptions about the education system and our government services. <clears throat> Dr. Naylor has been president of the University of Toronto since 2005. He earned his MD at the University of Toronto in 1978, followed by a DPhil in the Faculty of Social and Administrative Studies at Oxford University in 1983, where he studied as a Broad Scholar. Dr. Naylor completed work in internal medicine at the University of Western Ontario. In, 1990, sorry, in 1988, he joined the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. And in 1999, Dr. Naylor was appointed Dean of Medicine. Dr. Naylor is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, a Foreign Associate Fellow of the U.S. Institute of Medicine, and an Officer of the Order of Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. David Naylor. You can see that my, my impact is enormous. They're leaving in droves. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ms. Sylvester, for those kind words of introduction and for the invitation to join you today. It's a real honor and a privilege. I'm grateful to Jahan Carson for all her support and work behind the scenes. She has been tireless. As well, I want to acknowledge TD Insurance for their generous sponsorship. Manulife Financial for their sponsorship and for donating a table for our students, and to acknowledge Global Live and other supporters who have helped to make today's event possible. I particularly want to thank the members of the head table for their attendance, and I will unabashedly observe that Ms. Wood, Mr. Natale, Mr. Lacavera, and Mr. Switzer are University of Toronto graduates, but we're not here to crow today. <laughs> Speaking of the university, I do have to warmly welcome a couple of individuals who have played such a role in uh, the institution. Past chair of the governing council, Dr. Rose Patton, and past interim president of the university, my immediate predecessor, the Honorable Frank Iacobucci. I note that Dr. Corey Mulvihill, an alumnus who we're proud to say is chief of staff to the Minister of Research and Innovation, is here as well. I see a number of governors past and present, faculty colleagues, students, staff, and friends of the university, and I'm also delighted to see and welcome many representatives from sister institutions. So welcome everyone and thank you for being here. Earlier this week, the university made a wonderful decision in naming Dean Merritt Gertler 
as my successor as president. And as my term winds down, I, I have to say what a privilege it's been to serve the university. My confidence in the future of our great nation has been continuously buoyed by working with wonderful students, brilliant teachers and scholars, great partners and other institutions, all our dedicated staff, and of course, an impressive alumni community numbering more than 500,000 in 175 countries all around the world. At the same time, impending retirement does mean that I am now something of a zombie, lurching around for a while in a transitional state. And who better than a zombie president to tackle two zombie ideas about higher education and advanced research? Now, you may ask, what's a zombie idea? Well, it's one of those persistent and infectious pieces of misinformation, a meme that shouldn't be alive, but just won't well and truly die. Now, there are two zombie ideas that are troubling me these days. Zombie one, universities ought to focus on producing job-ready, skills-focused graduates. Stop all this liberal arts guff and this social science silliness. What Canada needs to compete and win in the world economy are more folks with college diplomas, more skilled tradespeople, and universities that focus on preparing people for careers in the real world. Or, as the governor of Florida memorably put it in a radio interview 18 months ago, you know, we don't need a lot more anthropologists in the state. It's a great degree if people want to get it, but we don't need them here. Zombie two. Those ivory towers are full of fat cat academics and loopy students asking unanswerable questions. Their willful irrelevance is a waste of taxpayers' hard-earned money. Get them off the gravy train and get them doing things that Canadian business can really use. The reason these zombie ideas are dangerous is not just because decision makers in the US and Canada have been infected by them. They're hard to destroy because there is unquestionably some truth and therefore some life to both of them. We know employers are frustrated with the skills mix that young people are bringing to the modern workplace. And we do know that Canada, like many industrialized nations and developing nations alike, has a youth unemployment challenge. And turning to our research zombie, again, there's some fire with the smoke. Federal and provincial governments sharply increased their spending on research starting in the 1990s. We owe a debt to the university leaders who advocated for those increases. But in making the case, they and others expected a rapid economic bonanza, just a hop and a skip from the lab bench to new multinational superstar companies. Well, everyone forgot that it's the private sector, not universities, that ultimately drives commercialization. But failure to meet those expectations has fed the federal appetite for applied research with a short-term orientation about which more later. So let's shine a little more light on these ideas if we can. Zombie one. If Canada were really a wasteland for vocational or career-focused education, you might expect us to be overwhelmingly invested in university degrees, a place where baccalaureates and doctorates littered the landscape well, we are world leaders in college-level credentialing. 
And it turns out that we are not close to being world leaders in the number of university level baccalaureate and advanced degree holders that we produce. Not even close. If you think about it for a minute, this doesn't mean we shouldn't address the skills shortage. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't improve apprenticeship opportunities. Doesn't mean that we should not respect and elevate skilled trades or champion some career-focused education at our universities. But if Canada's competitiveness problems are going to be solved by colleges and polytechnics or by universities that behave like them, ladies and gentlemen, we'd be rolling in tax revenues because we're world leaders at that. So what should we do? First, students know that a baccalaureate degree is important to credibility and to lifetime earnings. Especially in tough economic conditions, if a student's wiring is more practical and a little less academic, it's completely reasonable and to be expected that they might gravitate towards universities that are more vocationally focused. But with all the great college capacity in this province, in this country, one then has to ask, why aren't more colleges allowed to deepen and lengthen their programming and offer applied baccalaureates? Why is their role constrained in our system at this time? And why then are we asking universities to change their role rather than affect some smart differentiation? You know, a related solution is to promote shared programming between universities and colleges. We're all doing it, and I'm delighted to see representatives from Seneca here with whom we have a great partnership in multiple programs. But they can tell you it's not quite as easy as it sounds. The students aren't always the same, the courses sure aren't the same, and the expectations aren't always the same. And what we're not doing, ladies and gentlemen, is celebrating the fact that tens of thousands of university students who finished a baccalaureate go on to get a college diploma or certificate. That's seen somehow as a mistake. Tell me why those credentials should be stuck together in some predetermined fashion, primarily through articulation. Why shouldn't a young person get a liberal arts education, learn to think better, acquire some breadth of competencies and general knowledge, be challenged intellectually by professors and peers, and then go on to one of our great colleges to get specific vocational skills. There's another problem with the educational zombie idea. It obviously downplays the simple fact that many universities already educate large numbers of accredited professionals in every imaginable discipline. We also offer hugely successful and well-subscribed programming ranging across the sciences, technology, engineering, and mathematics the important so-called STEM disciplines. In that respect, I firmly believe Canada needs to enhance its commitment to literacy in math and science for people of all disciplines and backgrounds, especially for children and youth. This must be a priority. I'm so glad that Professor Ray J. Wardana has taken on a lead role in science outreach and literacy for the University of Toronto in recent months, and he's doing a stellar job. But while these STEM disciplines we all know are vitally important, interjurisdictional data really do not support the presumption that Canada's competitiveness challenges will be solved simply by a massive increase in the output of scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians, 
and dare I say it, medical scientists. Let's remember here that successful companies, innovative nations, and healthy communities also depend on management, on marketing, on communications, design, and many other disciplines. Indeed, in a borderless world, fluency in other languages and other cultures will have a great deal of influence on our success as a trading nation. I know you're probably still skeptical because of all the gloomy statistics floating around. The zombie masters are active and pervasive. So let's have a closer look at some data. We all know unemployment levels have indeed risen. And youth unemployment rates as a subset are even higher than those shown here. No doubt about it. But the best antidote to unemployment, as you can see, and the best insurance against recession-triggered unemployment is still a university degree. Now, Zombie One returns, and he says, Mr. President, I've got to get the posture right, those are all just the STEM graduates finding jobs. Well, Mr. Zombie, you're wrong. If you examine employment levels by program six months after graduation, Turns out that humanities graduates are finding jobs as quickly as computer science graduates. After two years, and these are six-month data, it all pretty much levels out. Well, you may say, all those art history graduates are baristas at Starbucks, to which I will say, as a good nationalist, I hope they're at Tim Hortons or Second Cup, but never mind. <laughs> and the answer is, some are, many aren't. Breakdowns in Canada are hard to come by, especially reliable ones. We know the US data. They suggest the match, the skills acquired in the baccalaureate and the job, is indeed lower and slower for the social sciences and humanities. But the economy is still sputtering. It's a time of tremendous change. And I would caution very strongly against undervaluing those disciplines in this complicated world at this time. Maybe we should instead be thinking about the kinds of students and graduates that our global community needs, not just for today, but for tomorrow. That's the set of competencies we need, because our students are going to confront challenges, everything from climate change to cybersecurity, that are more intertwined and complex and social than ever before. Our graduates are going to have to analyze and synthesize information, test hypotheses, challenge assumptions, weigh arguments from different viewpoints, and communicate better than ever in multiple media. These are skills that one can learn at a research-intensive university in philosophy and anthropology, with apologies to the governor of Florida, as much as in physics or computer science. So let me conclude my thoughts on our friend zombie number one, with three observations. First, educators worldwide, even in quite applied areas like the health professions where I've spent much of my life, are moving away from a narrow and term-limited focus on skills and towards what might one, one might call renewable competencies, best term I can come up with for it. Now, in this regard, my successor, Merritt Gertler, 
has been dean of our very large faculty of arts and science for the last five years. And that huge division has undergone a transformation with just such a focus. They're doing things like bouncing big lectures with small seminars, so there's nowhere to hide. Offering more opportunities for undergraduates to do research and to study abroad. And they're focused on ensuring that all graduates finish with some core competencies. They've set them out. Quantitative reasoning, no matter what your program is. Critical thinking, effective writing and communications, basic problem solving, and not least, ethical and social reasoning. These are competencies for a lifetime, for any job, and for every citizen. And we abandon them at our peril. Now, secondly, on a related point, when you look at surveys where employers are asked about the deficiencies in their employees, it's intriguing that employers most often cite not technical expertise, but attitude, punctuality, time management, motivation, teamwork, soft skills, things that used to be called character issues in some cases. Well, universities get asked to do a lot of things, and we certainly are helping with teamwork, but for the rest, an awful lot of these traits get shaped a little bit before the students reach us. And there are some limits to what we can be asked to do. Third, and finally, let me repeat. The world is changing fast. We recognize that our graduates may often invent their own jobs and in the process create jobs for others. I think here of our late and great graduate, Ted Rogers, Ted not only built an extraordinarily successful company, he laid the foundations for Canada's integrated telecommunications industry. And in the realm of deja vu, here at the head table, we had Tony Lacavera of Global Live and Wind. On the sunny side of 40, Mr. Lacavera is a serial entrepreneur who founded an upstart wireless company to challenge the so-called big three, including Rogers. And here's the twist. Ted Rogers was an arts graduate with a law degree. Tony Lacavera is a computer engineering graduate of U of T. And in like fashion, when you examine the executive suites across North America or in the UK, successful business leaders and great entrepreneurs have backgrounds that range across disciplines, and a great many are rooted in the humanities or the social sciences, including undergraduate management and commerce degrees. Now, on that front, let me digress briefly to say, we also recognize, all of us, that universities must respond and catalyze the entrepreneurial energy of their faculty and students. Thousands of University of Toronto students have taken Entrepreneurship 101, online or in person, at our partners, the Mars Discovery District. Last fall, we had to take our iconic Banting and Best Medical Research Buildings and repurpose them as incubator and technology transfer space because of the demand. And those buildings are almost full already. So is Mars, which is why we're lucky that they're getting close to finishing that lovely phase two building across the street. And uh, we're watching it enviously as it goes up. Here at the head table a few moments ago, and they're now at the back, were two gifted practitioners and teachers in the entrepreneurship space to whom I want to pay tribute. Reza Satu is a very successful serial entrepreneur, and Reza conceived and offered over several years an undergraduate course 
at the university in the economics of entrepreneurship. It had the highest approval and retake rate of any course at the entire university. And Mr. Satcher has now taken those ideas national with his colleagues and partners in the next 36 program headquartered here in Toronto. And Cynthia Goh, who was introduced earlier, is an award-winning researcher, but she's also an entrepreneur who has helped to create multiple startup company, companies based on her outstanding research in nanochemistry. In her spare time, she is working with Mars to make Entrepreneurship 101 a standard credit course open to students across disciplines. And she mentors a small army of student startup companies in that Banting and Best Center. There's a tangible result of all this creative energy. It's occurred thanks as well to the mentorship and partnership we have with our friends at Mars and Mars Innovation. Over the last three years, faculty and students at U of T and in our great partner hospitals have achieved the fastest rate of growth in startup generation among leading institutions in North America. The data speak for themselves. And so this notion that somehow research-intensive universities with a balanced portfolio are not in the space of technology transfer and entrepreneurship is simply wrong. This is good news, I think, for Canadian prosperity and employment, and I hope it's enough to keep zombie number one at bay for a few more days. And now let's switch to zombie number two, and that, I think, is a little more straightforward task. This zombie, folks, has already had an effect on research funding. These data show the funding patterns from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council over many years. And you can see the trend. Converting the proportions into real dollars, about $230 million of federal funding has moved from unfettered to fettered research at U of T over the past five years alone. We are already engaged with partners. We're already engaged in this type of match-funded, industry-facing research with an applied orientation. And that trend has been driven by funding decisions. Now, that didn't just happen at U of T. It happened nationally. Did anyone notice that over this period, our competitiveness and innovation indicators improved? I didn't. And again, the real problem was never the type of research that universities were doing. It was business-related R&D spending that lagged, which is why the Jenkins panel, on which I had the privilege to serve, was put together by the uh, Minister of State for Science and Technology and the Minister of Industry federally to examine how to stimulate business spending on innovation. Wrong diagnosis, wrong prescription. This needs reconsideration. Now, despite these changes, obviously, many universities across this great, great country have fabulous fundamental scientists doing great research and representing our nation on the international stage. But let's be clear that this funding ecosystem, with a variety of other disincentives to excellence and independence in it, does make it harder for us to reach the top tier of the podium. Perhaps this is why no Canadian has won a Nobel Prize in some 20 years. We are lagging. The research zombie masters, well, it have you believe it doesn't matter. Nobel, Schnobel, let's level down in the best Canadian tradition and go for the bronze. <laughs> right? 
Unfortunately, there's some very good reasons why great, basic, disruptive, fundamental research still matters. The first is that the success of homegrown Nobel laureates, not imports, will raise aspirations for everyone, especially as their scholarship inspires and attracts people from the next generation to follow suit. Put another way, a country where world-shaking discoveries are made routinely is a country that will always be able to compete by attracting the best and brightest to our shores. The war for talent is global, and more than ever, attracting the best and brightest matters. The second fact is that these great scholars doing fundamental research can be inspiring teachers. Ray Jarawardana, for example, is a stargazer. He's hunting for planets like Earth and other solar systems. You think, well, what's the value in that? Can't turn that into an industrial product or service tomorrow. Well, to me, Ray J's work also raises fundamental questions about humanity's place in the cosmos. And Professor Jay Wardana and Professor Goh and countless other colleagues like them spend their lives asking questions that stretch young minds and change expectations. And raising and changing expectations is critical if we are to compete and win. We want and need a generation of young Canadians for whom the sky itself is not the limit. Young people like Connor Emden, who will be tomorrow's leaders. The third and final reason why serious fundamental research matters is that the distinction between fundamental and applied research is somewhat misleading. As Nobel laureate Sir George Porter famously pointed out, there is applied research and yet to be applied research. In my field, medical research, countless discoveries that had no immediate application have turned out to be the foundations for life-changing and life-saving innovations in clinical care. You can't predict this in advance. You know, John Polanyi was not thinking of inventing chemical vibrational lasers when he did his Nobel-winning research on non-thermal infrared chemiluminescence and reaction dynamics. A mouthful even I'm struggling to get out. Similarly, Jeffrey Hinton, superstar computer scientist, who's done research into machine learning algorithms and deep neural networks. Who knew that Professor Hinton's work would lead to major advances in computer vision and speech recognition and data mining, and now, astonishingly, as many of you will have seen this fall, real-time language translation that can go from speaking in English into a smartphone and translate it to Mandarin with nuances and a perfect accent in real time. And his work is being used by Google and Microsoft and other major companies day in and day out. There's also another facet here. One needs excellence in research and scholarship across disciplines because no one can predict how disciplines will collide. So much of the best innovation is convergent. Let me give you an example here. This is Lorna McDonald. She teaches performance, opera, and vocal pedagogy in the faculty of music at the university. It's a very strong program, internationally renowned. But how does it connect? Well, it turns out that Professor McDonald collaborates with clinicians at the hospital for sick children on cochlear implants, speech-language pathology research, and pediatric voice and hearing care. 
Perhaps with that type of transdisciplinary approach, we can calm our second zombie with beautiful music and move on. So I want to close today's remarks if I might with both a warning and a note of optimism. First, the warning. These are composites of rankings across multiple league tables involving the so-called U15 universities, which work together as a group of research-intensive institutions on some common issues. Let us be clear that many of the best research universities in this country are at serious risk of losing ground, and not enough of them are figuring strongly on the world stage. Now, the media don't seem to care much. There are no headlines, no gotcha moments, no upstarts to coddle. Nothing to be gained by flagging this potential and slow decline of great Canadian institutions. And I'm sorry to say that some in the political class seem to be blinded by zombie dust. But in one jurisdiction after another, China, Brazil, Singapore, France, Germany, and for years the US and increasingly the UK. Major targeted investments have been made to ensure that the strongest research universities are actually able to compete on the world stage. And it is a competition. These are total publication outputs worldwide. We've managed to stay second to Harvard for a long time. But let me just make a point here about our Brazilian friends. When I became president eight years ago, the University of Sao Paulo was barely on the research radar screen. Today, USP is a key partner for the University of Toronto, and it's also an established research powerhouse that is right on our heels. Just this week, the Times Higher Education Group released their rankings of university reputations. This is based on a survey of thousands of professors worldwide. McGill and the University of British Columbia moved to 31st from 25th place. Toronto held steady at 16th. But let me share the warning from Phil Batty, the editor of the rankings, and a veteran observer of universities worldwide. Mr. Batty said that the decline was a direct result of Canada's highly egalitarian approach and pointed out that Canada was refusing to focus its resources on top research universities strategically so that they could compete. He put it precisely, and I quote, countries around the world are picking winners and investing heavily in them, so they are coming up the ranks while Canada is slipping. The Montreal Gazette paraphrased Batty's final warning as follows. The risk is that Canada could end up with many mid-ranked institutions but lack the big flagship institutions that drive investment, research, and development as well as the economy. Phil Batty's concise formulation, however, did miss for me the most important asset of all, the asset that will be most devalued if the zombies win. And I'm referring, of course, to young talent. The resources that really matter are not in the ground or offshore. The resources that will win the day for Canada are the inquiring agile and creative minds of the next generation. And here I continue to believe that given the right education and opportunities, with a full suite of institutions with different missions, including 
research universities that can compete on the global stage. The next generation of Canadians will make great discoveries, develop transformative technologies, imagine more successful societies, ask hard questions, and lead with verve and vision. I also have some faith that in the years ahead, with your help, the zombies will disappear and that our young people will secure a great future for our very fine country. Thank you for your kind attention and have a wonderful afternoon. I'm just waiting until our head table gets back to their seats. I will ask Lou Natelli, um, a director at the Empire Club of Canada, to lead in the question and answer period at this time. If you do have cards and you have questions, please hold them up. We have volunteers around the room who will collect them. Dr. Naylor, we have a couple of questions. The first one is, do you think Ontario should adopt a system of uh, higher and differentiation uh, than Alberta? I think uh, it's no secret to anyone here that I have been a champion of a differentiated system of institutions forever. That includes the college system, where I think we have some institutions that should have a, a unique role, as well as those that are more focused on the apprenticeship and uh, trades and skills side. I think that we are at risk of having too many institutions that are trying to do all things and that simply won't excel uh, with that mixed mission in the current climate of constrained resources. Uh, I don't know what the right model is. I do want to say that while I'm a huge fan of the California system, that ship has sailed. You can't simply come into a system like ours, which has a complex mix of missions, and say, you will do primarily teaching and you will do primarily research. That's just neither fair nor reasonable. On the other hand, if we continue to believe that every institution should grow its graduate studies and its professional programs and its research portfolio, then what will happen is everyone will lose ground. Those institutions are going to hit a wall financially and be world-class in some part of Canada. You know, it's like when I was growing up, we used to say, you're world-class in Woodstock. <laughs> and uh, that's not a bright future for anyone, and it also means we don't concentrate the resources effectively. So it has to be sunshine for everybody. All boats have to rise. I don't know what the blueprint is, 
but where we are now is not sustainable. Thank you. The next question, what are your thoughts on how extracurricular activities help formulate the soft skills? What a great question, especially after the ruckus about the back campus. <laughs> um, we're, we're big fans, I think, at the university, and I don't think you'll find a university or college president who wouldn't associate themselves with the view that making sure there's a huge range of activities for students is important. Uh, life outside the classroom is where so many of us, I think, in the room would say they did their fastest growth and learned the most. And that's not just those corridor conversations or coffee after a lecture or a consolation at the loss of a boyfriend or girlfriend in the middle of the night that you get from your peers. Uh, it is the big discussions about important matters. It's playing on extracurricular teams together. It's being in the chess club together. It's all those opportunities. I, I can't uh, give them a, uh, a strong enough endorsement. We need to make sure there are opportunities for our students to grow outside the classroom. I think of them as co-curricular, right? They're, they're not so much extra as co, they're part of the, the whole experience. Thank you. And the last question is, how do we fund, uh, how do we foster an egalitarian funding system where no university is left behind while sim simultaneously picking winners? That's your question. <laughs> This, this, is, this is a classic Canadian question, isn't it? Um, the answer is that you, a, you actually have to unbundle the funding formula. If you look at the UK, there is an allocation for the core undergraduate mission. There is a separate competitive allocation for research and graduate studies where the graduate studies have to be in the research stream. And then allocations based on professional programs. And if you compare what happens, some of the institutions that are less research intensive do very well because of their enrollment patterns. They also get special innovation funding so they can continue to do great things. And it doesn't mean they don't have scholars and they don't have research, but it does mean the teaching focus is much larger and the funding is targeted to it. The Oxfords and Cambridges and UCLs have a different funding model. They fight each other tooth and nail to get those dollars. It's adjudicated by peers and on the basis of hard metrics. And the funding formula is not a cookie cutter, bums and seats formula such as the one we have here. Until we get to that point, ladies and gentlemen, or do something to get there through another means, maybe a national excellence fund, uh, we are going to struggle to hold our place in this global competition. That's it, thank you. I'd like to call upon Lou Natelli to give the formal thank you. Uh, before I thank Dr. Naylor, I wanted to share a quick story uh, about a recent interaction we had uh, with the audience, and it's not embarrassing or no worries about that. Um, a client of mine had made a proposal to the University of Toronto. And we wanted to get some feedback from Dr. Naylor because his view would have been very important. Uh, this was done well after the fact, but we wanted to learn. And uh, so, like all of us, you'd expect with his schedule and everything else to say, I have time or don't have time, cursory response, et cetera. No, Dr. Naylor, however, uh, 
didn't do that. He got me on the phone. He said, so, you're here to talk about, so let's look at this presentation of yours. So he proceeded, much to my surprise, I was prepared at least, that he opened the presentation and he started on page one and he went through each and every slide, <laughs> 10 slides. And you were now, snoring the laughter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was shocked, even as uh, U of T alumni, certainly didn't expect that. And I think what I'm, the, the thing that struck me, if you think about his credentials and what he's done, et cetera, and you think of his rest of statues here, Anthony Lacovera, fundamentally, all these people make some kind of time and they have some kind of impact. So think of all the things that happened that one moment where the man took the time, which he didn't have to in any way, shape, or form, could have been very polite and said, thanks, I don't have time, and goes through 10 slides. I think that that's a, a real indication of the human side. So thank you for that. It was very touching. Thank you for uh, attending, and thank you for speaking at the Empire Club. It's a pleasure. As a token of our appreciation on behalf of the Empire Club of Canada, I'd like to present you with this book. It's a selection of quotes of over 100 years of the Empire Club of Canada. Thank you very much. Very much. Ladies and gentlemen, at your tables, you should find a list of upcoming events. I hope you will join us. We have some wonderful speakers ahead. At this time, I'd like to thank TD and Global Live Communications for sponsoring our event today, and thank Manulife Financial for sponsoring our VIP reception and student table this afternoon. I'd like to thank National Post and our print media sponsor. This meeting is live and will be carried on Rogers TV. You'll find us on Twitter and Facebook, as well as our web address, which is empireclub.org. Thank you very much for coming. We look forward to seeing you soon. This meeting is now adjourned.